Hello, welcome. You're listening to Feed, Play, Love, a bite-sized parenting podcast, a place you can find advice, understanding and support as you care for your small humans. I'm Siobhan Hunt. Once you emerge from the first year of parenting, bleary-eyed and thankful for at least four hours of continuous sleep, you might think that your problems with sleep are over. Unfortunately, many children continue to have challenges with their sleep. Nightmares and night terrors can be among those challenges. But would you know the difference? And what difference does it make to know? Professor Sarah Blunden is the Head of Paediatric Sleep Research at Central Queensland University. Hi, Sarah. How are you? Hi, Benjamin. How are you? Good, thank you. What is the difference between a nightmare and a night terror? Okay, so to understand the difference, we really need to understand a little bit about sleep and how it works. Sleep happens in stages and we enter sleep from a very light stage. It progressively goes down to deeper stages of sleep and then comes back up through the lighter stages and finishes with a rapid eye movement period of sleep, which we often call REM or REM, and that's when we do our dreaming and then we wake up, and it might be a big wake up or a small wake up. So we cycle through those stages all night long. Now to understand the difference between nightmares and night terrors, we therefore need to understand at what stage of sleep they actually happen. Nightmares are clearly dreams, just nasty ones, and they happen in REM sleep, REM sleep, which is at the end of the sleep cycle, It's very, very active and vibrant sleep stage. The brain is very active. And after that REM period, we usually wake up. That's when we have our dreams and our nightmares. Night terrors, on the contrary, happen in deep sleep. So the very deepest stage of sleep is when night happens, night terrors happen. They are not dreams. They are what we call non-REM parasomnias or confusional arousals. But for the sake of today, let's just call them night terrors. So that's where they happen. The difference between one and the other is clearly that one is a a nightmare that we have in REM. We usually wake up after that REM period. And that's why we can remember our dreams, because we are awake and we remember them. Night terrors, on the contrary, are one, not dreams, but two, we are actually still asleep. Our brain waves suggest that we are still asleep, even though there are um, elements of what we're doing which would suggest that we're not asleep, but we actually are, meaning we're not getting any external stimuli from the exterior. We're not feeling, we're not seeing, we're not touching, we're not sensing. So we are actually doing everything in a bubble. That's why when you have a night terror, it doesn't seem to matter what you say or do. It doesn't stop it. Is that, in a way, is that like sleepwalking then? Indeed it is. The spectrum of non-REM parasomnias, of which night terrors is the extreme end, start at the possibility of mumbling in your sleep, laughing, crying in your sleep, sitting up if you're, if you're able to sit up, if you're old enough, um, walking around, running around, night terror. That's the spectrum of severity. So anybody who has the potential to have a sleep talk would possibly sleepwalk and has the potential to have a night terror. 
with all of those, uh, the spectrum that you mentioned there, the night terror obviously stands out because uh, of the word terror. Yeah. Um, do we know why or how children might get into that state where they're not awake but they're in extreme distress? That's what it looks like from the outside, right? It does. It's very distressing. Well, I guess understanding why they happen is important. There are four main reasons why night terrors would happen or any of those confusional arousals on that spectrum. One is a family history. There is usually a genetic predisposition to having non-REM parasomnias, these confusional arousals. Everybody in their family probably has someone in their bloodline that at least sleep talks or possibly sleepwalks. The things that make it um, happen more often or more frequently or more intensely are, apart from disposition, are sleep deprivation, interestingly. Now, we all have the certain amount of sleep that we need that is very different from, from person to person, from child to child. Depending on the age, there is a, a need for more or less sleep. And there is also a big difference between one child of, say, three um, and another child will say three in what they need in a 24-hour period. So when I say sleep deprivation or sleep loss, that's dependent on each person. But when we do have less sleep than we individually need, when we do sleep, our deep sleep is deeper, 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 richer, stronger, more efficient. Mm. And because these activities, these spectrum of behaviours happen in deep sleep and they are because we are transitioning between different sleep cycles at that depth of sleep, it seems that when we're in a very deep sleep because we're sleep deprived and our body is saying, I need more sleep, I'm going to sleep really deeply tonight, that's when they happen and they happen more often because we have bigger, stronger, better deep sleep, if that makes sense. Yeah. So there's family disposition, there's sleep loss, and then there's stress. Stress can be either physiological or psychological. A physiological stress, which would make a night terror happen more often, would be something like maybe a full bladder or a full bowel, maybe the teething, maybe fever, coughing, difficulty breathing, snoring, uh, restless leg syndrome, a whole range of activities and bodily sensations that distress the body and disrupt that deep, deep, deep sleep feeling. The other one, clearly psychological, if this, uh, the child is under a lot of stress, if there are, and this is most particularly stress-related as opposed to anxiety-related, which is a different thing, stress is more commonly a state of a situational state. So there might be something going on. I might be changing schools. I might be going to kindy for the first time. I might be separating from mum or dad. I might be uh, fear of, fearful of the dark. I might have gone to bed worried. I might have just lost my lunchbox. It could be a whole range of things that stress out a little person. And when there are uh, stresses that hit a certain threshold, and that is also individual, these night terrors are more likely to occur. So when you have a night terror, you have the, the most extreme version of all of those predicting factors. We know now when a night terror might happen and what might cause it. But I often hear parents uh, we used to have a helpline where people would call in and ask questions about their child's sleep. And they would often say, you know, my kid is waking up crying and, and 
screaming and, and really upset. Is this a night terror and what do I do? And so there seems to be a lot of confusion between how a night terror and a nightmare presents. If you walk into a room, your child is woken up or you think they've woken up, they're screaming, crying, they're in distress. How, as a parent, do you determine whether it is just a nightmare or if it's a night terror? So your child wakes up and you hear them screaming. Firstly, have they woken up and then screamed or have they woken up screaming? Now, that might be easy for some parents to ascertain, but some may not. So effectively, you walk into your child's sleep space and they are screaming. Now, to understand whether it's a night terror or a nightmare, I suggest that you go towards the child. They need to be able to see you. So there needs to be enough light in the room for the child to actually see you. Now, if the child is awake and they see their parent and they are distressed, they're likely to communicate satisfaction of some sort that the parent is there because when we're awake and we're frightened and we call for help and we get the help, we are clearly happy with that outcome. Now, if you go to the child and you're standing there in front of them and you're not saying or doing anything and they can see you and they don't stop, it's most likely that they're having a night terror because they are not awake and they don't actually, quote, unquote, see you because they're not getting the external stimulant very well. Right. Sometimes you can even try and help them and they get worse because they're not um, understanding that touch is something positive. If, on the contrary, you stand in front of your child and they're screaming and they look at you, put your hands, their hands up to you, say, mummy, mummy, daddy, daddy, help me, or something, then they're likely to be awake because they have communicated that they see you and have and recognize you and are communicating with you so i guess the rule is they don't do anything they don't look like they recognize you they're not changing their behavior then it's probably a night terror if they do and they communicate with you in some way shape or form and it could be screaming louder or softer mm. then they will be awake and it's a nightmare and they are awake so if they're in a night terror and they're not responding to any reassurance, what should we do in that situation? Mm. And that also depends, I guess, on safety. If your child is having a real night terror, when, um, when I say real, a very active and running around doing stuff, um, it's very important, obviously, to keep your child safe. And that might mean a whole range of things. Um, but the, I guess... At the moment of the night terror, the, the most important thing is to keep the child safe. And often it is just to wait for it to peter out and it will peter out by itself. Now, in very young children, I'm talking babies, these do exist and they sometimes last 10 seconds, 30 seconds. I've, in my experience, in my clinic, sometimes up to a minute, which is an eternally long time, I have to say, for a little baby to be screaming like that. Mm. Um, they can peter out and the child will just stop and go to sleep. A night terror can last longer. Um, and I've seen uh, videotapes of, of some of my clients' children um, who are going for five, ten minutes. But at the end of that process, if they're able to keep safe, then they will stop. If you can't keep your child safe and you do need to wake them up, you need to remember that when they're woken up, they will be very heightened their blood pressure, cardiovascular system and a whole range of activities are very active and hyperactive. 
at that point and the child will wake up feeling very confused because they don't know what's going on and why they're awake and why everybody's looking at them so concerned and they will also feel very physiologically heightened so it's a tricky thing to come down from particularly with younger children who will then need some, uh, quite a bit of assistance to calm down and get to sleep. So we try and avoid waking up someone in a night terror because of that reason. But if it's a safety issue, then it's not a terrible thing that we have to wake them. It just makes the child a bit confused and that depends on the child and how bad it was. And then we have to do a behavioural settling to, to get the child back to sleep. Is it harmful at all for children? No, no, it's not. In typically developing children, it's not harmful providing the kids safe. It's just a transition from one sleep stage to the other. Um, the activities that they do need to keep them safe, but it's not harmful. In non-typically developing children with syndromes and, and other neurodevelopmental issues, it might be um, evidence of something else going on, but in typically developing children, it's not a worry. And it's very common, very, very common, particularly in young children from the ages of two to four, because at that time, they have more deep sleep than any other time in their lives. And given that night terrors happen in deep sleep, they're more likely to have them. So you've mentioned some really concrete things that we know about night terrors. Does that mean uh, that we can apply preventative measures to them happening or is it something that you can manage if they start to happen? The way that we treat night terrors is with something called scheduled awakenings. Now, Schedules awakenings is waking up your child at a certain time of the night. I hear parents say, what? You want to wake a sleeping <laughs> child? Are you crazy? The reason I say that is because um, we know that the night terrors happen in deep sleep. Now, once we're over the age of about three and a half to four, there is only one deep sleep period in the entire night. Under four, there are two or three, and in young babies, there are several. So what we need to do is to try and ascertain what time these night terrors actually happen because there is a cycle and there will be a rhythm, providing they are every night. So you find out, you work out what time the child actually falls asleep, not goes to bed, actually falls asleep. That's the beginning of the sleep period. And then you find out what time these events actually occur. They will happen in those deep sleep blocks. So in a child under three, that'll be somewhere in the 45 to one hour, five minute to one hour mark, somewhere in there. In an older uh, child, as of the age of five, when the adult sleep pattern has settled in, it will be after about an hour and a half um, into the sleep period. That's when a night terror will happen because that's when the deep sleep happens. So if you can ascertain the, the difference in time between the sleep onset and the event occurring, let's just say a child goes to sleep at 8 o'clock and the event happens at 9.15, then we have an hour and a quarter that, that sleep cycle that that's going to happen. You wake up the child a quarter of an hour-ish before the event happens. If a child has their event at 9.15 on day one, 9.20 on day two and 9 o'clock on day three, then you'd wake them up at quarter to eight, quarter to nine to get them all so that you break the sleep cycle. They don't go into that stuck pattern and the, the sleep terror does not happen in that particular non-REM deep sleep period. The problem there might be that in a young child, when there are several deep sleep periods, it might jump to the next 
deep sleep period. But you can do the same thing at the next deep sleep period, which means, of course, that you're monitoring stuff all night long, which is not great, but <laughs> that's, that's the way that we would do it. Yeah. Now, that does work. In, I've had children that are having up to six night terrors a night, and we've done that process. And whilst that was tough for the parents the first night or so, it did actually peter out uh, at, in the end. But it also um, means that those night terrors have to be uh, consistent and predictable. If you have a child that has a night terror once a week, you're probably not going to wake them up every night um, at the same time to manage one night terror a week. I guess it depends on the cost benefit, the cost of having to get up and monitor this kind of thing, or the uh, benefit of getting rid of a night terror that might be happening every night versus one that's happening only occasionally. If you have a child that's maybe only doing it once a week, can you apply preventative measures in terms of those stresses you spoke of before, like making sure uh, if they're old enough that they've been to the bathroom before they go to bed or that mm -hmm. you're monitoring their bowel movements? I mean, there's little you can do to control that sort of thing. But I guess if you can't be waking them up to interrupt that REM, um, that sleep, deep sleep, where the night terror happens, can you look at those other measures and try to put things in place? Absolutely. And and these are probably all just healthy sleep behaviours, I guess. Mm. Um, monitoring all those physiological things, going to the toilet, seeing if you can get a regular bowel movement, that would be terrific. Sometimes it's not possible. Keeping feeding and eating regular, um, having a nice relaxing routine so that you're getting the child to go to sleep in a, in a relaxing situation de-stressing at night time, having a bit of a chit-chat and a talk with mum or dad um, so that we, you know, debrief about the day, all those things that we would expect to make a child as calm as possible. If they only happen once a, a week, they are less likely to be problematic. Um, and if a parent finds that they are very, very, very intense, that particular once uh, once a week, then it, well, you'd need to probably do a little bit more monitoring to find out, a bit more precise monitoring to find out what's going on there um, in terms of measuring sleep and ascertaining what other behaviours might need to be analysed or understood in terms of what's triggering it, if you get my drift. And do they grow out of it? You mentioned that's most likely to happen between the ages of two and four. Would most children eventually stop having night terrors? Most children do, but there are there are a percentage of children and adults that continue to have sleep anomaly and parasomnias. They may not be night terrors. Night terrors are more specifically to younger children, but there are some people that do it as adults. And as we get older, it's easier to monitor whether it's actually a nightmare or a night terror as we get older, and it's easier to uh, discuss with a verbal child clearly um, what we can do about those two things and how we can manage them. Briefly moving to nightmares for a moment, um, obviously when you can comfort a child, it makes it a lot easier to help resettle them back to sleep after a nightmare. But I have a memory that I had recurring nightmares as a child, and I'm sure my parents will attest to the fact they had to comfort me over multiple nights. Is that actually a thing that happens, recurring nightmares? And if it does, is there a way of interrupting that pattern for children? Yeah, certainly a good question. Well, we first of all, we um, have to understand a little bit about what we scientists think is happening in our nightmares. So we believe that dreaming 
is the brain's process, because it's very busy during REM sleep, very, very busy, we believe that the process is actually consolidating memories from the day and putting them into what I term the filing cabinet of the brain and putting the memories and the information that we've got from the day into the relevant filing cabinet overnight. So we're taking short-term memory, putting it into long-term memory storage in our brains overnight. But because we're unconscious, sometimes we put that memory in the wrong box or in the wrong file. So our dreams, which are processing this, this information, sometimes might connect that information or thought to something that's completely random. And so that's why our dreams seem to be pretty random. Sometimes there's very relevant stuff that we, we saw or felt the day or the week of the dream or the nightmare. And sometimes it's completely random and someone pops up in your dream that hasn't been there for years. This is because we think you are unconscious and it doesn't really make any logical sense. Now, this is a theory. There are lots of theories about dreaming because we actually can't prove any of this because dreaming is such a subjective thing. What you dream and what I dream and certainly what a child dreams is going to be very different and dependent on them explaining to me what they're dreaming. So I can't prove any of that and I can't understand any of that because it comes from a subjective unconscious state. Mm. So having said all that, what do dreams, what do nightmares, what purpose do they serve is the next really question that goes from that. Well, the theory that I espouse to is that nightmares and dreams are telling us something and they are reacting to a state of cognitive function or emotional regulation in an, in an unconscious state. That's the way that I see it and there's theories to back that up. That's the theory that I espouse to. Meaning, if we've got um, a recurring dream and uh, the recurring dream might have a theme, for example, the recurring dream that I had used to be that I as an ex-ballet dancer, because I'm an ex-ballet dancer, would go into the theatre and I couldn't find my costume and I couldn't find my shoes and I couldn't do my makeup and I couldn't do anything. I just didn't know what I was doing. I hadn't been to rehearsal. Mm. So I had this recurring dream all the time and I thought that I realised that the recurring dream is telling me that I'm stressed and unprepared and that's what's going on. Now, that's what I do when I work with young people and little people about their dreams. What's that dream actually telling you? Well, maybe it's telling me that I'm stressed or I'm worried or I'm missing people or I'm, what is the theme? It's almost like a thematic analysis of a dream. And if it is a recurring dream, the thematic analysis can be discussed. And the theory is that if you discuss and rearrange that dream in your waking hours and you practice an outcome of that dream that is better or different or helpful, then that will switch over into nighttime when that memory goes into the long-term storage. And it does actually work. So did you end up finding your ballet slippers and your makeup? <laughs> I didn't have to stress about not knowing the choreography. <laughs> well, that's a relief. <laughs> that's a relief indeed, especially for the people that have paid a lot of money to come and see me, I suspect. <laughs> <laughs> so um, we can talk to our children about their nightmares. Um, you spoke before about good sleep hygiene, and I'm wondering, mm. is there any problem with, the comfort you offer your child after a nightmare. I mean, I know my kids want to be in bed with me after a nightmare. Um, they're a bit older, so it's easier to get them back to sleep. But are there any things we should be aware of when we're comforting our children after a nightmare that we should possibly avoid? I guess the first thing is to 
understand the age of the child that's had the nightmare because a young child won't understand what that actually is. And that's always tricky for we parents when we're trying to explain to a child that you just had a dream. They go, I don't know what a dream is. What are you talking about, Mum? So that's interesting. I guess it's um, the way that you explain that is that what's important is that we acknowledge and validate that this experience that the child has just had is unpleasant. It's not that we should not say anything about it because it's very clearly distressing. And the child knows it. The Mm. child is conscious. Unlike a night terror, you don't need to say this about a night terror because the child won't know they're doing it. But a nightmare is different. So talking about it and validating their feelings. Now, how you comfort a child, for me, in my opinion, and it is and it is based on um, theoretical parenting styles, based on responsiveness, if you like, when a child is distressed, you comfort them. You would that, do that in the day. Of course, you do that at night time. And so depending on where you want the child, how, how old the child is, how resilient the child is, and what you wish as parents for your child in terms of their sleeping behaviours, you would comfort them and if they you feel that they are okay enough to go back and sleep by themselves, then you do so. If you feel that they are too distressed to do that, forcing the issue in that situation, in my opinion, is going to make that worse because the child then associates feeling yucky and scared and worried um, to perhaps their bedroom or to perhaps a negative association there. So it's a very independent thing about how you deal with that. I don't believe that taking care of someone who's frightened in the middle of the night um, can be problematic, providing there's a limit to what a parent might think is acceptable. And that's based on how they want the parent in the first place. Sarah, thank you so much for your time today. That's my absolute pleasure. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to share. That's Professor Sarah Blunden, Head of Paediatric Sleep Research at Central Queensland University. I'm Siobhan Hunt. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please rate and review us so we can reach and help even more parents. And if you have a topic you'd like me to cover, send your email to feedplaylove at theparentbrand.com.au. See you next time.